Good morning to each of you. It's good to see you here today and gathered together to worship our great God who is worthy of all praise and glory. Well, we continue in the series that we began last Lord's Day in the book of Jude. Uh, Today, the title is Contending for the Faith Admits Dangerous Apostates. And you'll see that come right out of the text, pretty much, of what Jude addresses in verses 3 and 4, which will be the substance of our text today. It is very interesting to me that in the providence of Almighty God, that the church is always encountering some type of conflict at different times. There's been persecution throughout church history. I mean, think from the very beginning when Cain killed Abel, there's uh, murder and mayhem and persecution against the righteous uh, all the way back to there. But even in the last 20 centuries or so under Nero, I mean, even these letters are written in a context of persecution, a context of conflict within the church. And the apostles haven't even died off the scene yet. And there's this level of conflict. So we shouldn't be surprised on the one hand, and when we read stuff like we're going to study today, that we're to contend earnestly for the faith, we need to take that very serious. And Jude is recognizing there's something that's inside of the church that needs to be addressed. He's addressing it very earnestly, very passionately, as he calls, as it were, the church to take up spiritual arms and to fight. It's as though Jude had made a diagnosis on the church as as he witnessed it, uh, the Jerusalem church there, and, 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 and makes a diagnosis that there's a cancer inside that needs to be radically removed in some way. This cancer is going to spread, and it'll actually eventually hit the lymph nodes and destroy the body. And so he gives the call to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, there have been some seasons in church history where, where there's a level of peace for a time and, and prosperity, I guess you could say, where the gospel's going forth and it seems like so many are getting saved, where, where the nation is almost Christianized, right? But does that last long? It doesn't. Because what happens? Lethargy sets in, formalism sets in, another generation rises up that does not have the passion of their parents and ultimately a falling away. Think of Puritan New England might be one example of that where things were so great for 150 years and then started to slide in the early 1700s and and you look at it today, um, a huge difference. One observation from our text is that Jude's purpose is to motivate and to exhort the church. That is his purpose. The overarching action required is that we contend for the faith. It implies a serious conflict. And we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to fight for the truth? Let's put it another way. Is the truth worth fighting for? Or do we just all want to get along We'll let aside the absolutes and just kind of get along and kind of go, you know, with the flow of culture. No, the once for all delivered faith is something that is very precious. And the way that he, he, he coins that in this text in the original is very clear. He's talking about solid doctrine. It is worth fighting for. There are so many churches today that really, so-called churches that are not churches. 
that the three marks of a sound church are this, faithful preaching from the Word of God, observing the ordinances or sacraments, and practicing church discipline. Well, most broad evangelical churches will have nothing to do with the last one, because to confront somebody that's living in sin and to practice church discipline will actually make the numbers fall some when you allow those kinds of people in. Um, preaching of the Word of God is really set aside for storytelling. Maybe one verse is read. I listened to another terrible example given by our friend Pirate Christian Radio, and it was just unbelievable. One verse was read, and it was all man's opinions and stories for about 25 minutes so I could stand it no more. And that is what Christendom is being fed, sadly, largely today. No, we're to preach the word, observe the ordinances, and to practice discipline. The goal is restoration, that the church would be pure. And that's how a church remains pure. How different that is from the jellyfish pulpits of our day, the fluffy, spineless seminary instruction or professors that are there that are denying the core essentials of the faith because their denomination has slid, and even Christian colleges. Well, this short book is a passionate plea for us to take up these spiritual arms and to engage in battle. Turn with me if you haven't turned. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8. Our text, again, is just verses 3 and 4, but to get the broader context. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I desire to remind you, Though you know all things once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people from the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you for these these brothers and sisters in Christ who have come hungering and thirsting after your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help me in my weakness to be able to communicate the truths accurately. Lord, to the end, that, that our own courage and uh, would be built up and that our faith would be fortified. Lord, pour out your spirit upon this place. We know that you are here. Make it ever, ever present and ever real to each one here. And for the one that does not know you, Lord, would you have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, last week we, we, we studied um, the author is Jude. There's uh, Jude, Judas is the same word, but there's eight different ones in the New Testament. We eliminated the other seven. This is indeed the half-brother of our Lord, probably the youngest brother of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't identify himself with that out of humility. He identifies himself as a doulos, a slave. I'm a slave of Christ is who I am, not the brother of Christ. But he does identify himself as the brother of Jude. The timing of the letter is probably A.D. 64 to 65, just before Peter's death. The recipients, we're not told it's to a certain city. We, we believe it's uh, to those that are familiar with the Old Testament, so probably to Jewish people, as we identified last time. But he identifies the recipients in three ways. Look at the end of verse 1. Those who are the called those who have been effectually called, those who are elect. The, the secondly, the beloved of God and the God the Father, and those who are being kept, that is, protected by Jesus Christ, and that is, those who will persevere to the end. So taken together, Judah's emphasizing the ground of their calling, being the very love of God, and the goal of their calling is that final salvation. And Jude is confident, as we reference verse 24, that God is able to keep and to protect his true uh, children. And so today, let us be instructed by God's infallible word. Unbelief in God has got to be one of the most foolish things in the world. And why do I keep pleading with those of you who are not converted It's because my heart is heavy. It's because I have a longing to see souls saved. It's because I don't want anyone to ever have to endure eternal punishment in hell. Yet men harden their heart, and God eventually keeps giving them over. Romans chapter 1. He gave them over to degrading passions so that they might believe what is false that is really right. And so there comes a time when you harden your heart, you harden your heart, you harden your heart so much that God says enough. Now, we know that God is sovereign and he's elected who's going to be saved, but in the very real nitty-gritty of it, you have a responsibility to respond in faith. Uh, Barnhouse gives an illustration of Prince William, the son of Henry I in England, was aboard a ship that was lost at sea. And the nobleman who was in charge of the little prince thought he knew better than the captain. And it's lost at sea, and the captain's saying, we can't go this way because there's a rock there. I saw it before. And the nobleman in his pride says, and so the captain's saying, we need to go around. The nobleman says, no, we will go this way. Of course, the, the ship is destroyed by the rock and only two survivors. But that legend reveals the position of so many who blindly, continually reject the truth. I know better than God. I know that this way is safe. Let me go this way. This is the safe way. Unbelievers may say that the rocks of judgment are not in the path that they have chosen, but they will be proven wrong. And you young people, you say, well, wait, I haven't rejected God. I'm here with mommy and daddy. Isn't that a good thing? I, I'm, at least I'm here. I'm, I listen to some of the things that you say. I'm with mommy and daddy. Well, by your lack of profession and by your lack of standing up and being called out that I am one of, the, one of the son of God, that I am a daughter of God, that I am a believer, by your lack of profession, you are rejecting Christ. 
And we'll see that in our text today, the importance of submitting to Christ as Savior and as Lord. It's vitally important. So today, we're going to look at this under two points, one for verse 3 and one for verse 4. First is Jude's original intention and renewed purpose. We see that in verse 3. And in verse 4, Jude's compelling indictment against the apostates. So come with me now as we begin in verse 3. Jude has set out to write a letter about the common salvation. Uh, He begins with the term beloved there. You see that softening things, making it very warm. Um, It's the general epistles where you see new ideas introduced with beloved, whereas Paul would would, would often bring that up as a supporting, um, to support something that he had already brought up. But that's neither here nor there. He begins with beloved. While I was making every effort, that's the noun spude. Spudazo ministries is a verb, spudazo. But this is a noun. It, It means I was making haste to write to you about the glories of our salvation. I, 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 lay, I made haste to do this. And it means to give serious attention to accomplish a task. Um, just so you can see this word used in another context, in Second Peter 1, where it says, applying all diligence to your faith, add moral excellence, and so forth. That word, diligence. Also, the verb, Second Peter 1.10, the end of that paragraph, Brethren, be all the more diligent to make sure of his calling and choosing of you. So he was going to write about the glories of salvation. He wanted to reveal the salvation that had been accomplished in Christ, announced through the good news of the gospel and and applied by the Holy Spirit in time as we are effectually called. He wanted to write of the, the glories of the grace of God and how we, as it says in Ephesians 2, are trophies of His grace to be displayed for all eternity. He wanted to write and magnify the mercy of God to vile, wicked, wretched sinners. He wanted to write about our free justification and salvation and and the glories of being adopted into the family of God and and how we're being further sanctified and used of God. Vessels that were worthless, but that he's taken to make them precious and to even use them in the expanding of the kingdom. Those are the things that encourage us, though. We could talk all day about those things. When we get together for fellowship over a meal, we're often talking about those things, what God has done and what he is doing. But something happened. Something heavy came upon Jude. As much as I would like to write about these things, there's a cancer that's been detected, and I must write and address this cancer. He uses the term here, I felt the necessity. This word, literally, it's a compound word, as Jude loves to use, means to compress tightly and up again. And so he's compressed once again, and he felt the utter necessity. It's a constraint. It's a compulsion now that he has that he must address the cancer that he sees in the church to apostates, false teachers. Wicked men. Paul uses this very term in 1 Corinthians 9. You'll, you'll be familiar with this. If I, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, he says. That's the word. 
I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's the term, compulsion. So he feels the necessity to write and to address the real and present danger among them. This became a burden in his mind and a burden upon his heart to to address this cancer, as it were, as I'm referring to it, of, of the apostasy in the church. These apostates that have crept into the church, they're not really of the church, that is, they're not really children of God, but they've come in, as it were, through the side door. And maybe the few goats, as there's always a few goats amongst the sheep, uh, you know, applauded them and welcomed them in. And so now there's, there's, a, there's a quorum, as it were, uh, you know, a, a small group of accepting of them. And so he says, I felt the necessity to write to you. I appeal to you. Parakaleho, I urge you. I exhort you. I'm calling to you to contend earnestly for the faith. What does he mean by the faith? Well, it's not your personal faith in Christ. He, as we've talked about through the pastoral epistles where it's often used, of this is a body of doctrine. It's a dogma. It's what we believe about God and salvation. And notice he uses the term here, which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is A.D. 64-65, and he's already saying there's a body of doctrine that is once for all handed down to the saints, to the next generation. We saw this with, in 2 Timothy, with Paul, you know, telling Timothy again and again, his young son in the faith, right before dying, carry this gospel and entrust it to other men, this precious body of doctrine entrust to others as I have given it to you. We see the same term <clears throat> used for tradition or... Um, this idea of handed down, as it's translated here in Jude, it's translated tradition. It's, I think it's paradosis, but it, it's the idea of something that's handed down in Second Thessalonians. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And that text is important because Paul's saying, my words carry the same authority as my letters as an apostle. And so the doctrinal convictions of the early church were codified, uh, at least in a a basic form, and handed down. We see several of these, um, Philippians chapter 2 may have been an early Christian hymn, you know, on the incarnation of Christ. You see in the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where there's uh, another place, there's these different places where, where these were probably summaries of doctrine which are packed, dense, full of truth about Christ and about God. There's nothing more valuable in this world than truth, brethren. That's why the martyrs were willing to be burned at the stake. That's why the persecuted church is willing to be tortured, even unto death, to stand up for the truth and refuse to die, to deny Christ. Deny Christ, that's all you have to do, and we'll let you go, and they refuse. There's an enormous amount of pressure in our day, in this 21st century, to compromise. To just, why do you have to be so strong in your convictions? Can't you just soften it up here a little bit? Can't you just, you know, ignore that that, this part is in the Bible? There's an enormous amount of pressure. And of course, this affects some churches, some denominations, we see denominations about every 20 years, major denomination declining and declining. 
Even if they hold to a confession that might be sound, they don't adhere to the confession. And the decline continues and continues. Why is that? Well, enough people get inside. There's enough pressure. Maybe it's a threat of losing a job. Maybe a pastor doesn't want to accept this, but they're threatened to lose their job, which they should lose their job. (laughs) But uh, funding, financial support for Christian education and colleges are are largely um, uh, dependent upon these donations from outside sources. And if they've gone liberal and they say, well, you want our, our money, then you need to conform to this. I think our president just did something like that in the last few days. Bullying, saying, if you want money for the schools, you will do this whole gender identity garbage, which is of the devil. We see in the last couple hundred years the questioning of the fundamentals of the faith, the bodily, real, true resurrection of Christ being denied and being explained away, all these different theories. The virgin birth beginning to be questioned as German liberalism would spread in. And, and, and really what, what that did was, when you begin denying the essentials of the faith, it began to lay the groundwork for what we see in full-fledged um, perversion all around us is, is everything began to experience or, or began to center around experience rather than doctrine. And now we have, I mean, that's, that's what consumes so many so-called churches. It's all about an experience. And especially in the last 20 years, it's gotten to utter nonsense. And the attack against Christians and Christian education is just heating up for us here. So at the end of the day, if you believe God's truth is always changing and it's a moving target and God has no absolutes, what is there to fight for, right? What will you fight for? Fight for what? And even in this short letter of 25 verses, this is packed full of theological truth. We, we, we have so much on the doctrine of God. The Trinity is revealed in verse 1 and in verse 20. Uh, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of the lordship of Christ, the doctrine and mandate of the use of the means of grace, the day of judgment and eternal reward, and on and on and on. It's just here because it's inspired by God. And these are things that we are to contend earnestly as he goes on. I'm appealing to you that you would contend earnestly for something. We've already described what that faith is, but what does it mean to contend earnestly? Well, it's a, it's a word, uh, the, the, the root word is, is somewhat common, agonizomai. It's the idea to agonize for something, a, a, a conflict, a contest, a debate, a, a full-out you know, boxing match with chunks of glass and metal in it. it it's, it's that kind of contest. It, it would be would used at the Olympics. But Jude here throws an epe in the front of it, a preposition to intensify, for, intensify it. It's more than just contending. It's earnestly contending as though your life depended upon it. And you might say Jude's call to wrestle and to contend for the truth you know, is not very popular in our day. I mean, aren't we called to be meek and mild? Aren't we called to just be gentle and to be kind to others? Well, 
We are, right? We are. But does that negate the fact that we're to fight for the truth? It does not negate it. Different attempts have been made for churches working together, ecumenicalism, Catholics and evangelicals together, and and all of these kinds of things where we soften the differences between us. And really what that means is where you compromise and you accept false truth, right? False doctrine. You see, our ministry here at Grace Bible Church is centered around the Word of God. We give the bulk of our worship services to the preaching of the Word. All of our studies and theological groups and women's studies are centered on the Word. Our Sunday school classes are not, they're not going to go play foosball and ping pong later today. There's nothing wrong with that. They're going to focus on the Word. Then they might go play some games, but they're going to have a time. And the word, everything is centered around the truth. Jesus himself said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So we shouldn't be surprised at the call for the church to be militant and to fight for the truth. If the church does not have that mindset, it will be given to error. There were some historians um, back in the, I think it was the 80s, that did a study. Uh, This is kind of old data, but they did a study of going back to 3600 BC, some 5,500 years, and noted that there had been 14,500 uh, wars, large and small, 3.6 billion, billion people had been killed in these conflicts, and out of all of those years, there's only been 292 years of peace where there was not a war going on in some part of the world. Well, that's really, I think, a picture of what's going on in the church too. Like we said, the church has almost always been a conflict, with the exception of maybe a few seasons here and there where there's, where there's been some uh, reprieve, as it were. But we should not be surprised at the call of God to stand up for the truth and to contend earnestly. When people mix truth and error, the result is God's wrath. Remember, we've talked about it before. A glass of pure spring water with one drop of cyanide in it. Is any of that water any good? No, it's all contaminated. You let in a little bit of error, a little bit of false doctrine, your whole message is distorted and wrong. And so we are called, brethren, to disarm the spiritual terrorists that exist. It's as though... To use the analogy of ISIS, ISIS has, has infiltrated every community in San Diego County and in, in, in California. They're, they're in different parts of Claremont, even right now. And, and that's the idea. These spiritual terrorists who are spreading error are out there. And we need to be, as it were, on the alert, lest they would try to work their way in. I remember when we first planted the church uh, 10 years ago, the first couple years, you know, you're brand new, and so you get all of these people that are fringe people. They're not committed to a church to check us out and try to, well, I really think things should be this way, and it's their little axe to grind and, and different things that, that have no, that were just imbalanced views. There must have been a dozen of such men that passed through and stayed for two weeks to two months or something, but we are in a holy war, brethren. It is holy It is God's war. We know he will fight for us. We have a responsibility in it. How can we practically, brethren, how can we contend earnestly for the faith? A few practical applications. He uses means, right? 
Yeah, we just sung, the church is one foundation. He is the one that will ultimately fight for us. But we have a responsibility. He uses means. We personally must be committed to the truth and taking in a regular diet of the Word of God. If you begin starving yourself, the first dog biscuit that comes along or or thing that looks like food, you're probably going to consume and it could contaminate you. A regular diet of the Word of God will give you regular discernment to discern the spirits and so forth. And then, don't be content with that. Be committed to growing in Christ ourselves. I'm so thankful that, well, the the monthly apologetics uh, home fellowship group that's been meeting for three years, they've been studying apologetics. Some of us are training our children in apologetics. In our men's theology group, we address the topic of apologetics and, and being willing or, or being able to discern error and to be able to fight against false doctrine. And so, therefore, equipping ourselves to be able to recognize these things. We're to guard the gospel ourselves. We're to train our children in this and sound doctrine. We're to strive always for the unity of the church around the Word of God. Um, Doctrine is important, and we must not um, strive for unity at the expense of truth. The, The truth must be central. We're called to entrust this to the next generation, not only our children, but young men as they're being groomed and, and preparing for ministry to, to do what we can to help train them and mentor them, to support local missions and world missions, to be involved in leadership training in different parts of the world as the Lord would open up doors. Those are just a few ways we, as a small, relatively small church, can contend earnestly for the faith. Well, moving on, that was the original tent and the renewed purpose of his letter. Now we know uh, what he wants to address. And now let's look in verse four at the compelling indictment against the apostates. First of all, he mentions that they have crept in. It's crept in like pest. Now, if any of you have been a homeowner for any amount of time, you've either had mice or rats or bugs of some sort. You've had pests at different times, right? Rats are the grossest because when they die in your attic and you don't know where, you have that smell. It's a distinct smell, right? It's not a pleasant smell. And, you know, everyone in the family looks to who? Well, the man of the house to go dig around and find out where the maggots are and, you know, all that. But, but that's the idea that, that they've crept in. They, they've, they've, they've crept in, and the, the word here connotes a, a, like a dishonest attorney. <laughs> Sorry, Colin, you're an honest attorney, but to contrast, our brother. Um, so even in the first century, it was actually had to carry that connotation with it. Uh, so cunning craftiness, these pests sneak in, and they're very cunning. In other words, what they say initially may have enough truth in it to actually appeal to the senses, to where you give them some attention. They quietly settled in the ranks. As I said, the goats perhaps get rallied around them to accept them. And the urgency, as a Jude here sees this as a cancer, using that as an illustration, it's a modern-day illustration. And so he points out these four characteristics of apostates, or four charges. First of all, looking in the text here, certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Now, when he says certain persons, the, this pronoun, the way, the way it's used, is it's not, it's not certain persons. Like if I said certain persons, you would all be, who's he talking about, right? No, this is certain persons. You know full well who I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. 
1 Timothy 1.19, when this pronoun's used, it's, it's the speaking of a distinct group of which its hearers would understand. Keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, and he goes on to name them, but that which some is the same pronoun. So he knows this, I mean, the, the church knows this unnamed group um, that he's referring to. So he has, to, he has to confront the teachers themselves, not just their teaching. And it says that they were marked out long beforehand. It's literally that they were written about before time. Um, and there's different interpretations for this, whether it's written earlier in the first century, such as Paul, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, right? That's written. Second um, Peter 2.3, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Whether it's talking about God's reprobation of them from before the foundation of the world, since God has marked them out, I believe from all eternity, we must see the urgency of removing false teachers and not dancing around with them, so to speak. Just as this growing tumor needs to be removed, uh, you know, the, the spread of the cancer before it spreads to other places and then the whole body is destroyed. Romans 2.5 but because of, the stubborn, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to their deeds. This condemnation is really illustrated in verses 5 to 18. And you heard me read uh, the, the next verses, what it will be our next text, verses 5 to 7, those three examples of, of judgment and, and the, really, the whole the central part of the letter is speaking about the reality of that judgment. Jude does not mince words. He uses very strong language because of the urgency. And, you know, again, we want to, in our day, it's let's be politically correct, let's modify language, let's not offend anybody, and those kinds of things. Jude did not have that problem. Um, in Jeremiah 9, uh, the weeping prophet Jeremiah is, is there and he's, he's thinking about the enemies, how they bend their tongue, how their lies and the, um, the, the truth is not in them, how they pervert what is good and turn it into what is evil. And it burdens the prophet. Well, secondly, they're marked out long beforehand. And then secondly, just simply ungodly persons. Ungodly persons, uh, the lexical definition of this is violating the norms of proper relation to deity, being irreverent or impious. So ungodly has the idea of violating the norms of a proper relation to deity. In other words, it's spurning the deity and going your own way. The hypocrite teachers have wormed their way in. Morality is the issue, and they are rebels before God. Now, some of these ungodly persons may know Christian phrases and some Christian lingo and may even know the newest, coolest Christian music that's been released. But that doesn't mean that they're truly his children. And so it just as Jude's uh, hearers of this letter, when it would be read, would have been shocked that these were in them. We, too, are sometimes shocked when we hear of certain heretics that have written certain books, that have written certain music, that are uh, preaching before a group of people 
And by their deeds, we will know them, Jesus said. And they are obviously not true believers because they deny the truth of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Thirdly, in our text, we see that they were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, and then notice this, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. This, is, this word is another compound word. It means to affect a change in state or a condition. It's a present tense. It's the idea that they are continually turning the grace of God into sensuality or licentiousness, depending on the translation of your Bible. The lexical definition is a lack of self-constraint that involves one's conduct that violates the bounds of what is socially acceptable, self-abandonment. It's, there's no restrictions, and boy, do we see that today. Indulgence and sexual immorality and perversion and, and unparalleled scales. Jesus makes clear that these sins ultimately come from our hearts, and that's why we believe in total depravity. Jesus himself says in Mark 7, 22, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality, there's our word, envy, slander, and pride and foolishness, all these things proceed from within the man and defile him. We have corrupt hearts. Praise God for his salvation. Praise God that he comes in and, and his mercy and takes out the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh, a renewed heart, not a sinless heart, but a renewed heart that now has a renewed disposition to honor and to glorify God. God forgives their sins. And uh, the, the grace of God, the doctrine is that he forgives sins, and so there's a temptation for some to presume upon God's grace. But what they fail to recognize is that repentance is absolutely necessary. That even as renewed believers, when we sin and we fall on our face, we repent, we keep short accounts with God and with our fellow man, and, and we make that right. But those who are given to this feel there's no need for that. The grace of God has covered it all. It's this hyper-grace movement. I could name groups that have fallen into that in recent sad examples of Tullian and others that could fall into this. That the grace is just going to cover it all anyway and just keep going. 1 Corinthians um, 6.9 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so these that perverted the grace of God and gave license to wicked immorality and, and these deeds essentially deny their only Lord and Master. John Bunyan from about Grace Abounding, this is before he was a believer, it was early in the book, but he knew, um, he, he was, his, sense, his conscience was sensitive. He, he talks about meeting an antinomian who gave himself up to all manner of unfilthiness or filthiness rather, especially uncleanness, and would laugh at the exhortations to sobriety. When I labored to rebuke his wickedness, he would laugh at me all the more. And that's sadly a picture of apostasy. Peter writes, For the time is already past as sufficient for you, have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, and have pursued a course of sensuality and lust that's already passed that should be a part of your past one of the puritans said the right way to put out the fire of lust 
is to withdraw the fuel of excess. And so self-control, watching what you look at, uh, not allowing you to look at, at anything that, allowing yourself to look at anything that would be inappropriate. Fourthly, they're rebels to God's authority. The end of the verse, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers prop themselves up as their own masters, don't they? They're their own authority. If you notice, most often they have no accountability structure whatsoever. They're self-ordained at so-and-so ministries, so-and-so this, Benny Hinn ministries, whatever it is, um, you know, named after their name, and they prop themselves up in this regard. They refuse to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. They might confess with their words Jesus is Lord, but by their lives they're denying um, Christ as master. So MacArthur says, so their character, conduct, and creed was all corrupt. Now, this phrase here, you might ask, well, why does it deny the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ? There's a single article that's here, separated by the and, and so the master and Lord is speaking of the, the same person, and it says clearly, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that in other examples. I'm going to skip for the sake of time. So, but the two words he uses here is kurios, right, which is the common word for Lord, that we, we see that again and again, and then despot, which is only used 10 times, which means sovereign master. And so both of these terms are taken, and, and the despot is sometimes applied to the Father, sometimes applied to God in general, but here applied to Christ. He is the sovereign master. Jude is, is saying that Christ has the absolute right to our loyalty and our obedience because he is Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is the one to whom we will give an account on that great day. And the point is, is that if you are disobeying him, you are denying the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Christ said. The Lordship salvation debate of some of us are old enough to remember 30, 35 years ago. I guess it's still an issue, but uh, it came to a head when Dallas Theological Seminary faculty and professors began to endorse this idea that you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, and still be saved. Well, isn't that appealing? Um, you don't have to submit your life to Christ. You can just have him for Savior as a life insurance policy. And of course, John MacArthur wrote his classic book, The Gospel According to Jesus, to expose that, that error and, and expose the whole idea of the carnal Christian theory, that you can have him as Savior and live like the devil, but not submit to him as Lord. What a heresy. And so many churches propagate that idea. So there's three peoples. There's the lost. There's the saved that are worshiping Christ and have Christ as Lord of their hearts. And then there's the carnal Christian who's going to be saved, but he's not living for God. The Bible knows nothing of that whatsoever. And if you have a question about that, I'd be happy to show you uh, exegetically and from the Word uh, to support that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, How divinely supreme is our Lord above all others. You cannot receive Christ in bits and pieces. Now, he may have been addressing that. I don't have where that, when that quote was said, he may have been addressing that very error in the 70s and 80s. So it's similar to uh, Jude and Second Peter. It's striking where uh, this is especially since both Peter and Jude speak of these false teachers denying their master, the, the despot there in First Peter 2, 1. 
denying the master who bought them. But whoever denies me before men, Jesus says, I will deny him before my Father is in heaven. Well, what concluding applications and encouragements can we receive from such a strongly worded text here? First of all, our church in particular is to be militant. Militant means to be ready to fight, right? And we need to be militant and be convinced of that and to fight for the truth. We know that our fight is going to succeed and that Christ is victorious because the head of this church is not Steve, it's not Pastor Kurt, it is Jesus Christ who is the head of this church. And Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we know that we will be victorious, but we are called to be faithful. Matthew Henry says, we may with the greatest assurance depend upon God for the safety of his church. But we must be discerning. We must be discerning to test the spirits to see if they be of God, as as John would write in uh, chapter 4 of his first letter. Now, if you flip on one of these God channels, as a friend used to call them, TBN, whatever, there's like dozens of them now, or a dozen at least, and, and you begin to just listen for a few minutes, your discernment antennas should start to shrivel and wrinkle. And, you know, when you're hearing that there's really not three persons in the Holy Trinity, there's three for each person, there's nine. Well, you should say, oh my gosh, run. But then, you know what? Then the, the camera pans out and everybody's, you know, they're just so happy. They're deluded. It's, it should break our hearts that there's so many deluded like that. But when you hear that kind of stuff and you hear this absurd stuff that you're gods because you're made in the image of God, Creflo Dollar, that kind of stuff, no, we need to be discerning. Jesus said, even in Matthew 24, we read it, at that time, Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Boy, do we see that on those networks. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. It is the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Brethren, endurance and perseverance is the key for us. How can we endure to the end, individually as Christians and collectively as a church? The means of grace is God's ordained means for our perseverance. What does that mean? It means being in fellowship, being a member of a New Testament church where you're hearing truth. Truth is coming in through the eye gate, through the ear gate. Truth, you're filling your mind with truth. As you meet with other believers, they're speaking truth. You're, you're being sharpened and honed in. You're having accountability. You're being under the ordinances, remembering what your salvation is based on. All of these things God has ordained for our perseverance. And when somebody's losing it, maybe even a true Christian that has just gone astray and they're backsliding and all that, Almost always, and most of you know this, when you begin to, if you have the privilege to talk to them and all of that, well, I left church six months ago. Well, I haven't been to church in so long. Why stop reading my Bible? They've left off the means of grace. That's why they're struggling with perseverance. You wish you could just flip a light switch behind their left ear or something, you know, to like, oh, now I get it, (laughs) you know, but it's not quite that easy. We're going to sing in a moment, O church, arise, put your armor on, hear the call of Christ our captain, for now the weak 
can say they are strong in the strength that God has given. I love that hymn because it reminds us of the humility that we're to have and the dependence we're to have upon God. Who is on the Lord's side, Francis Havergal wrote. Uh, Who will serve the king? Who will leave the world's side? And who will face the foe? And then have you experienced the grace of God? Have you, have you understand that the grace of God is something altogether precious? It's, it's something that is altogether valuable, that there's no such thing as cheap grace, that, oh, that you can go through life, oh, I've been saved by the grace of God, and then sin in a wicked fashion, and immorality, and all of that. There's no such thing as cheap grace. It costs the sinless, precious blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So sexual immorality, sensuality, and all of that stuff ought to be like gravel in our mouths to where we want to run away from it. And then as Christ your Lord, are you submitting to Him in your life? You say, well, yeah, me and Jesus, we're good. Okay, well, let me give you one other test. The authority that's in your life for you children, are you respecting and obeying your parents? Not perfectly, but to the best of your ability. You wives, structurally, you're put under the headship of it's Christ, the husband, and then the wife. Are you seeking to honor and respect your husbands and to serve him as your Lord, as Sarah refers to Abraham? In other words, look at your life and the other authority structures in your life to see if those things are right. And it will be evidence that this is right with our Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins here today? Have you seen yourself as a guilty sinner that's that's drowning in your sin and and you're enslaved to wickedness and unrighteousness and, and you feel as though there's no escape? Have you cried out to the Savior who has the life preserver, as it were, the only one that can actually save you, to rescue you? Have you called out to Him as the waves would billow over your head as God's wrath would beckon, call, and you could hear the screams from hell that you will be joining soon if you are not saved. As you're gasping for air, look to Christ. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. There's also... Uh, the, the despairing. Sometimes you can despair in the midst of your sin as you're drowning in it. And Bunyan in his Jerusalem Sinner Saved, an excellent work, you know, it speaks of despair, despair of bread and a land filled with food, to despair of mercy when God is full of mercy. Use and, and flee to Christ for his mercy and be reconciled to him. May the Lord help us to. Uh, obey the mandates that we have in our passage today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the truths here. Help us individually to um, apply what we've learned of how we can contend earnestly for the faith, beginning with our own faith, with you, equipping ourselves, growing in Christ, growing our families, nurturing them, being committed to the local church, assisting with 
the purpose and goal of the church. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen families. We pray that you would strengthen our, our church. We thank you that you have made her strong by your grace. But Lord, we do not want to presume upon the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we sing our last song, we're going to have just a...